Welcome to the Photoethics Podcast. I'm your host, Savannah Dodd, and I'm the founder of the Photography Ethics Center. Each week, I'll be talking with an accomplished photographer about the ethics of their practice. Today, in episode number eight, we'll be talking with Smita Sharma about empathy and storytelling. Smita Sharma is an independent photojournalist and visual storyteller based in Delhi. Her work primarily focuses on human rights, gender, crime, and social issues. Her work has been published in various places like National Geographic Magazine, The New York Times, BBC World, Time, Channel 4, among many others. Smita has exhibited and shown her work across the globe, including at the UN headquarters in New York. She's a Getty Images grantee and an IWMF fellow. She received the One World Media Award for her short film, Rebels with a Cause, in the popular features category at BAFTA London in 2019. Other than her home country, India, she has also worked in other countries highlighting difficult and sensitive issues, such as child marriage in Nepal, teen pregnancy in Kenya, sexual slavery in the Central African Republic, and murdered transport workers of Guatemala. So thanks very much for joining me here, Smita. I was wondering if we could start just by um, you telling us a little bit about the kind of work that you do. Uh, most of my work has been on human rights, uh, crime, social issues, and gender. And uh, I like to work on underreported issues, uh, things that don't appear on the surface, or things that appear on the surface, but when you dig deeper, they take a, all, they take a really different meaning. But having said that, uh, I also work on uh, assignments uh, because they help pay the bills. And you know, it's very difficult being an independent freelance uh, photographer. Uh, so I, I do work on different things, right? From politics to daily uh, events for the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or whoever, you know, uh, approaches me for that. I was looking at your website and I saw a series that you had done on um, survivors of rape. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about that series because it was so heavy hitting. It was really powerful, um, but I can imagine it was a very difficult thing to shoot yourself. Like I can imagine it took an emotional toll on you to do the work and also that it was probably a very um, complicated topic to approach in the first place. So I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about how you approach that story and how you approach stories like that, that are so um, sensitive? So uh, the project is named uh, Not My Shame. And from the name itself, you can understand it's uh, the real purpose was to remove uh, uh, stigma, you know, which is often, uh, you know, the blame and shame. It's always on the women. Uh, it's, it's their onus, you know, although the crime has been done by the men. So um, that was the main aim of uh, for doing that project. And uh, I started it, you know, it's, it's been six years, more than six years now. But uh, that's, that's when I started to shoot the project, you know. But uh, prior to that, I spent three years researching on this topic. Uh, I read uh, case studies. Uh, I studied, uh, you know, the relevant laws. Uh, also, some of the famous court cases on this issue, um, I, I, 
I read all that uh, because uh, I think it's very important for any photographer or any journalist uh, before you work on something you should know the relevant uh, things and you should do your research well so I like to do a lot of research before I actually go and start working on something it was uh, difficult to navigate um, absolutely because uh, first of all I was nervous I was a woman working on this country and I was working on some very difficult regions, particularly the northern states of India, you know, the northern region, which is really male chauvinistic, very, uh, it's difficult for women to work. People are smart, they have cell phones these days. So whenever they know that an outsider, because I'm considered as an outsider, uh, as a city girl, so whenever they get this information that there's a city girl who's, who's come to our village, the word goes like a wildfire. Everybody gets to know about it. And then in some in some situations, I was out. I There was a huge number of people who came asking questions and all that. But um, that doesn't mean that I did not, uh, you know, work with ethics or I did not... Uh, you know, follow what I was supposed to do as a journalist because the family that I was working with, they knew why, why I was there because I had already coordinated with them before I went there. And uh, that I did through uh, somebody who was local, somebody, uh, you know, uh, I, I've worked uh, with village school teachers or a local lawyer or somebody who lived there and uh, a local activist, you know, from a non-profit. So, uh, I always contacted them through somebody who was local and then I went and met them. Sometimes uh, I was accompanied by them, sometimes, uh, you know, they, they came the first day or for just a few hours and then they left and then, you know, I, I stayed back. And it's not that I stayed there just for a few hours, I stayed there for quite some time. Sometimes, you know, a number of days because um, I did not start asking them, how were you raped? I think that's really wrong and very insensitive. It takes time to work on something sensitive and uh, something which is so difficult and you don't want to re-victimize them by asking them difficult questions. So I like to give them time and I set it out for them to narrate what happened to them if they want to, it's their choice. Because I talk to them just as a human being. I share my own stories with them, I talk to them. And you know, Savannah, something really that touched me was many times some of the girls, they came up to me and they said, uh, Didi, Didi is a word for elder sister. So they would say like, uh, Didi, nobody ever came and spoke to us the way you did. Nobody talks to us. And that's when I felt how isolated they were because they were ostracized, they were shamed. And this does not hold true just for India. It's a global issue. It's a global problem. Even in UK and US, women are blamed. You know, why were you drinking or why did you go there or why were you showing your cleavage? It's your fault. It's your shame. Absolutely. So when you're sort of talking with them and working through showing their story, how do you how do you depict them photographically? And do you involve them in that process in any way or how does what does that look like the process of actually taking the photographs then? So, you know, if it's a portrait, then it is a collaboration. And also, uh, because of the sensitivity and because of the laws, the laws in India don't allow you to show uh, or reveal the identity of the uh, survivor. You cannot show their faces, you cannot reveal their names, and also uh, you cannot uh, reveal the location. So I was, I had to be very careful as to, you know, uh, I didn't want their house to be recognized. 
you know, although many houses look similar or the neighborhood can look very similar, but I didn't want to take that risk. Uh, so definitely the, all the portraits have been a collaborative process. And I had to ask them, can you stand this way? Can you look in that direction? Can you move your face away from the light? And I used a lot of lighting, you know, and the, the kind of lights that I use are really tiny lights because I travel to the villages. I don't want to come across as a photographer, you know, because I have to, I don't want to draw attention to myself and uh, you know I don't want to bring any kind of danger to myself I'm a woman right what if something happens who is going to come and rescue me or how am I going to get out of that situation <laughs> and uh, also I didn't want to put the family at risk I didn't want people to know why I was going to their houses so you know I I developed a technique and which I do even today I uh, in, in certain these kind these kind of situations where a family there's a girl who's a survivor of a sexual crime and I'm going to meet her I go around walking in the village and I tell people that I'm doing research on female hygiene and then uh, I take random photographs with of other people also I don't directly go to that girl's house so the moment I start talking about menstrual hygiene, you won't believe it. The men just leave me alone. They are so embarrassed. And, <laughs> and that's how I do my work. You know, once they leave me alone, uh, I start talking and people are really curious. Uh, they want to know why you are there. So once their curiosity has died down, they are bored of seeing me and they know like, okay, she's here for this reason. Okay, she's carrying a sanitary napkin and she's giving it to some girls. So once they're done with all that, then I start doing my real job, you know. I go, I, I, I spend time with the family uh, and uh, sometimes it's the survivor's family, sometimes it's the victim's family and I say victim because sometimes the girls don't survive, they are murdered. I've been to their houses, I've met their parents and I have interviewed them, I have, I have documented their, you know, their lives. I think that's such a good idea to not draw attention to the family. I, I read about that actually in your interview with Robert Godden in the volume that I edited called um, Ethics and Integrity and Visual Research Methods. And I was planning on asking you about that. So I'm glad you I'm glad you brought it up. And and that whole process that you're describing is so time intensive. And I think that time is something that comes up a lot in conversations that I have with photographers about how much time it takes to have an ethical process and to do things ethically and to lay the groundwork and do the research. And I think that's really coming through in these stories that you're, you're telling. And I wonder, to what extent are you able to have the time that you need when you're doing commissioned work? Or is that sort of a whole nother beast? So uh, it all depends on uh, the clients that you're working for. Uh, you know, I, I just recently uh, concluded my work with uh, National Geographic magazine. And uh, this was a story on child sex trafficking, and uh, which was cross-border. It was between in India and Bangladesh. So this was a project that I started on my own five years ago. And uh, I had done a lot of research as usual. And then I started working on it and developing my network and access with the police, with the bureaucracy, with the anti-human trafficking unit and, you know, various law enforcement agencies, apart from the survivors and, you know, the shelters where the girls, rescued girls are uh, kept. So uh, when I approached Nat Geo, they, they saw the work that I had created and then, you know, the story was approved by them and then they uh, asked me to start everything from scratch. 
but i was i was on a very good position because of my already done access that i had you know i knew people uh, so it it was easy it wasn't easy i easy as in easy but it was easier i would say because you know i had done my homework why did why why did they ask you to start it from scratch what was it that um was different the second time around so it was not different it was i think a continuation of it, of what i had done it's just uh, you know the policy of nadju is that you have to if you're on assignment by them they will you know you have to shoot for them and everything has to be uh, you know st- from the start you know it's uh, i mean there was one or one photograph that i had shot before and it was a very uh, important photograph that i had taken of a criminal inside a photo uh, inside a police station and uh, which is rare it might not be rare in other countries but in india it's rare to get that kind of access you know uh, interviewing a criminal who was inside police custody so that photograph was uh, later licensed by nadju for the story you know this reminds me of something that you said about how and i didn't know this that in india it's required by law to protect the identity of survivors of rape and sexual assault and that's so so interesting in so many in so many ways but it reminds me of a conversation that i had previously with another photographer and we were talking about um the risk of being paternalistic in terms of if there's a situation where a woman is a survivor of rape and she actually wants to own her story you know how complicated that can be if we say well you can't you can't be identified or associated with your story you can't you can't own your story in that way and and you have to be anonymized i was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you view that and and how that comes out in your work i think it's a very interesting question and uh, uh i'm not against the idea of a survivor wanting to come and share her story and show her face if she wants to um it's absolutely her call because some people uh, are really brave enough to come out in the front and uh, even in india there have been women who have come out in the front in the past you know but uh, the relevant law is called pocso uh, which is protection of children from sexual Offen- offenses act so this particular act was done to protect the children uh, to protect minors i think uh, there's nothing wrong in it because children they are traumatized and uh, whether they can take a decision that they want to uh, you know come out and uh, talk about because uh, you don't know how the future is going to unfold for them and uh, in countries like india or in any country in asia you know there's a lot of shaming that i had mentioned before so you know the prospect of getting a job the prospect of getting married or having a boyfriend everything can be affected so this was the reason why this law was made and the law does i mean it's not that anybody who is above 18 cannot come out in the open or talk about it no i have met people i have met survivors i have interviewed two two survivors who were adults and they said i want to show my face because i don't think i've done anything wrong you know why should i be ashamed absolutely so so that law then applies specifically to minors yes for adults uh, it applies only if they consent uh, to you to show to allow them to be revealed uh, you know reveal their faces reveal their identity their names and everything 
there might be some people who might say that you have to change my name but I don't mind showing my face if you photograph me in a certain way that has happened to me in some situations you know a girl I mean she was 23 and she said like if it does not come in Facebook I don't mind you can you can publish the work so different people have different priorities you know they have different reservations that resonates with me so much because Something that I often talk with people about when I'm helping uh, organizations or individuals develop consent forms is about sort of the importance of giving people those options, you know, because people do have preferences. How do you do do that and how do you implement that in your work? Because I've heard a lot of people say, oh, yeah, that's like a great idea, but how do we actually how do we actually do that you know and i think that becomes a little bit of a barrier to the conversation about giving people more autonomy over their image i think it's all about informed consent and this is a huge topic that you know robert and me have uh, discussed and also you know we have discussed this in in the book you know the chapter that he's written for the book that you have published so uh, you need to inform Uh, the people that you're photographing, why you are there, what is going to happen to the images, how is it going to be printed, in which region or country, is it going to be translated, is it going to be made public uh, in that particular region, in that particular country. Because uh, sometimes some people say that if it comes in foreign publications, I don't care. But if it is, uh, but if it publishes in India, then there is a problem. And some people they don't even care if it publishes in the country. But then they tell me that it should not be published in this particular state or in this particular language. You know, then it's okay. And then, as I told you, some people because uh, people, the youth especially, they use a lot of social media. So uh, they are scared. They don't want their particular images or story to be shared on social media sometimes. And then they uh, they also ask me, is it going to be there and before they ask me I tell them that it could be you know because for that Nat Geo story you know which I was doing I, I told them that this will be available on Instagram on Facebook and this is how it's going to be published or there is a possibility of the of it being published in this particular way so then they would tell me okay so you can take my photograph but you know you can do this or you can do that or you know I just want to mention this incident and uh, uh, about a particular assignment that I did for Human Rights Watch. This was a few years ago. Uh, I did this uh, in Central African Republic. So we were a team uh, with a videographer and a researcher. This project was about documenting women who were kept as former sex slaves uh, and uh, who were used as a uh, weapon of war, you know, where rape was used as a weapon of war. While we were working on it, the researcher uh, was very uncomfortable with Uh, you know, us interviewing or photographing them and she wanted us to do everything in a silhouette. And you know, as, as as an artist, a silhouette is what black and white, you know. It says nothing and for, for me, it's very important to show the person's uh, personality. I, I want to know how, you know, uh, something about her, even if you don't show the face, there are different things that you can show that tells us a lot about the person, the body language, the way she's looking up or she's sitting. And uh, so I tried to explain and she said, you know, the women are so poor, sometimes they just have one or two set of clothes and uh, I don't want them to be identified. So I had to think of a solution. What can we do? So I came up with a solution. Uh, you know, I, I spoke uh, spoke about this too with my colleague, Zoe. And I said, what if, what if we send, uh, you know, our local producer to the market 
and what if he goes and buys some fabrics? So we, we sent him and uh, we asked him to get some safety pins and some fabrics, you know. And uh, he came back with a pile of clothes. Some of them were trans translucent because I had asked him to get some translucent and some of them were just normal clothes, normal cloth fabric. So we dressed the women with those new fabric. And in some of the places that uh, we photo photographed, I used the translucent material to have a layer in between me and the person. You know, it was an additional layer. So it also acted as a very nice, it, gives a, it gave a very nice artistic look. And uh, then they were wearing different set of clothes. And of course, I did a lot of lighting, which I usually do. So I think, I think Human Rights Watch was very happy with this work. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it, uh, my, my editor called me and she said, like, I'm really happy that you came out with this solution and the photographs are really powerful, you know. So we'd, we did, uh, at the end, it worked out and uh, we were happy that it created the impact that we wanted. Absolutely. I think that, that brings up such an important point that identifiability isn't only somebody's face. You know, I think that that's a, a brilliant example about how if somebody only has two sets of clothes, you know, that is very, very identifiable. Even if you photograph just their bottom half, you know, or, or just their back. Out of curiosity, I'd like to know what happened to the cloth at the end of the, at the, end of the photo shoot? So we, we gave it to them. We gave it uh, to all of them. So the fabric that we gave them, it was uh, not the same fabric that we photographed them. Because what if they wore it? You know, we had to be careful with that. So we gave them a different fabric. We gave them a new fabric, but a different one. Right, right, right. No, that makes a lot, that makes perfect sense. And, and when, when you're talking about sort of giving people options about how their photographs are used. So if you're doing a story and someone says, right, totally fine with it going anywhere except for Instagram. What happens when that sort of limitation is set and you're working for uh, an organization like Nat Geo? How do you transfer that information to the organization? And does the organization always respect that? Or how do you ensure that the organization treats that with integrity? You know, I've been very lucky to have worked with very good editors who are wonderful human beings. And at the end of the day, we are all human. You know, you have to understand no matter who is uh, working at what position. I think the person that we photograph, that person does us a favor by sharing their story. We are not doing a favor. They are doing a favor to us. So we have to respect that. And that is really important. And it has never happened to me that I came back with something that uh, uh, that was rejected by the editor. It never happened. You know, uh, even in uh, this Nat Geo assignment, there were many things that came up. It was, you know, hell lot of issues that we had to resolve because it was so such a sensitive issue. It was risky and uh, there were so many things. Like one of the girl, uh, she was a major and she said you can use her name. But at the end of the day, you know, when we went through all, all, all our, uh, we had to um, scrutinize all the information that we had and our researcher, she was, uh, you know, verifying the information. And uh, then we all thought that I don't think it was uh, important. I mean, uh, it might just put her into some kind of uh, 
some kind of danger. And uh, she used to work in a particular uh, factory and I had it in the caption. And uh, suddenly I remembered that I should not mention that she's working in a particular type of factory because if, if we happen to disclose the location, it wouldn't be very difficult to find out that how many, uh, you know, factories uh, produce these kind of products and then someone can just, you know, locate her. So there are so many things that you have to be very aware of and careful about. And uh, as you asked, uh, has there been any situation? If there is a situation, I talk it very honestly with the editor. You know, there's always, it's all about problem solving at the end of the day. And in terms of when you're getting um, informed consent from an individual and you're talking with them about where the photograph is going and how it might be used and what potential risks are, um, something I'm often asked is how do you, you know, if you're working with people who don't have reliable access to the internet or who have never engaged with social media, how do you make that understandable to people and, and how can they give consent for something if they've not ever used the platform? How do you approach that in your work? So I show them the platforms like, look, this is the Instagram and this is how I share my stories. And, uh, you know, if it's a particular publication that I'm going for, I show the publications, Instagram or social media or Facebook, any, any social media. And I tell them that it is going to be shown in this way. You know, you have a phone with you all the time. It's not so difficult to open it up and show it to people. Absolutely. No, that's a that's a great point. <laughs> Very good. Is there anything that sort of now you're, you know, many years into your into your professional practice, is there anything that you really wish that you had known back when you started um, as a photojournalist? Well, <laughs> um, so, you know, I think uh, I started my profession a bit later, uh, not in my early 20s. Uh, but I started photography very early when I was 18 and then, you know, I was self-taught. And when I, start, when I wanted to work, uh, you know, as, as a documentary photographer, as a photojournalist, I did not have many options or I did not have a mentor or I did not have much information. I, I didn't know how to do it. So uh, I worked on many things, right from advertising to event management. Uh, then I took a break. I studied again. I did my post-graduation in journalism. And then I joined a newspaper, you know, a national English daily. Uh, and I worked there as a, a correspondent and as a sub-editor for six years, um, which I did not enjoy a lot, but I was working at the desk. <laughs> and uh, that's when I realized that this is not meant for me. I'm meant to go out. I'm meant to do other things. And I always loved the visual medium. I knew it was photography because photography was my first love. And I always did photography even when I was working. I would go on travel. I would take my camera and I would always share stories and I would always meet different people. And camera is a big excuse to meet different people and talk to them, you know. It's, it's, it's a very beautiful thing. Um, so 
Well, I think this this is what I would say. Maybe had I started earlier, things would have been different, or maybe I would have done a lot of work. But you know, we all have our own timelines and destiny. No one can change it. And uh, I don't think any experience goes for a waste. Even my work that I did uh, as a journalist, I think it, it's come very hand, handy uh, even now because I know how to navigate through things. You know, difficult things because I had it. I already had that kind of experience working as a, as a correspondent. Yeah. Absolutely. What would you say is sort of the one or two main skills that you've that you've brought from your experience as a journalist and and you use that in in your in your work in photography today? I think uh, managing difficult situation, keeping calm and managing difficult situation. Sometimes people get violent, sometimes you're surrounded by a mob, sometimes a lot of things, people might not want you there. So how do you diffuse a certain situation and come out of it? Absolutely. And yeah, you talked a lot about safety. And I I definitely think that safety is an ethical issue as well, because, you know, whether we're putting ourselves in, in danger, putting others in danger, or who might have to be put in danger to save us if we get in a dangerous situation, you know? Um, so what kinds of steps do you take in, in your work to, to ensure your safety and the safety of others? Well, as I, as I mentioned before, you know, in, in certain situations, uh, if I think I'm going to single out a particular family, I go and talk to other people, as I mentioned before. Uh, I don't go there as a photojournalist. I don't carry a lot of gear. In fact, sometimes I don't even carry a camera bag. I have a really weird, ugly-looking bag, kind of like a tote bag. Uh, and, you know, I have this camera bag where it, it has a detachable chamber. So I can put my, uh, you know, the lenses and the camera bodies, and then I can take this whole thing out and I can put it in that other tote bag. So if you look at me, it doesn't look like a camera bag. And I also don't carry a lot of gear. I work in a very minimalistic way. I know a lot of people carry three, for uh, lenses, uh, so, you know, they have a hell lot of things, but I don't. I, I use very, very uh, smaller things. Uh, the lights are really tiny. Uh, sometimes I don't even carry a tripod because it's not possible. And I use a lot of things which are available on location. For example, if I'm sitting in someone's house and I need to place a light, I can't find anything, then I'll look for something which is available, you know. Like uh, sometimes a furniture and then I'll keep some vessel and then I'll put that light on top of that vessel. You know, I create, it's like all about how how creative you become when you are left with nothing. <laughs> so that's what I do. <laughs> and uh, the other thing uh, is about when you're traveling. So when traveling, it's very important to get a good driver, um, do, do a lot of uh, background check uh, of the region that you're going, which is the good time to go to that region, which is the time to avoid going in certain places. Um, I think it's very important to learn on that. And uh, also, how do you blend in? If I'm working in Bangladesh, which is a largely Islamic country, I am going to wear a certain set of clothes and cover my arms. And, you know, uh, not everybody wears a hijab, but if it's required, then I will I, I will wear it. You know? So it all depends on which country I'm working in uh, and how do I have to tackle that particular situation. And is there any advice that you get would give to, to someone who wants to pursue a career similar to yours? You know, I get some emails from young uh, 
photographers or emerging or those who want to pursue uh, photojournalism as a career. And uh, many times I have been asked, uh, can we join you? I want to go with you. Uh, you know, you go to such exotic locations and your images are uh, so, so great. Uh, what I find is that, you know, um, they live with a bubble in their eye. They don't realize how hard our profession is, how difficult it is to sustain. Uh, I mean, f uh, there are so many things to it. First of all, uh, if you're working independently uh, as a freelancer, you'll have to make ends meet. You need to pay your bills. So how do you make that money? That is the first important thing. Secondly, you know, it's, it is not at all a glamorous profession. A lot of people think, you know, a oh, woman with a camera, oh, wow. But it, it is absolutely no. It is, you know, when you have to carry tons of gear and uh, when you have to walk just to reach a particular place. Like I have uh, walked, there, there were certain places where the cars couldn't go. You have to leave it and you have to keep walking in the hot sun, you know, walking three, four kilometers to reach just to meet somebody and then, you know, start your work. It's not easy. It's certainly not an easy profession. And another thing, and this is an advice that I really want to tell uh, young photographers that don't be in a hurry to get recognition to get your work published because I see a lot of people they want to take up work because it's the hot topic. Uh, when the Me Too movement was happening a lot of people wanted to work on women and sexual violence issues okay not because they really cared or I'm not ruling out the fact that they don't care but I don't know how invested can one be in something that you don't really care about because at some point you're going to get bored of it. So I think you should only invest your energy into something that you really like that you really care about and then you should follow it and if your work is good eventually you know your work will get published your work will get recognition if you really do it honestly it things happen it's just a matter of time when it happens you know and we all have our own timelines as I said well, I, I think you're such a good testament to that as well that how many years were you working on the story before it was picked up by Nat Geo like three, three years. years yeah like that's that's a long time to invest in something with with no um, confidence that it will be that it will be taken forward on the other side. So absolutely. and not just I, that, I got rejected by all the grants that I had applied to for this book. <laughs> all of them. I think I applied to at least fifteen grants, and I got rejected by all fifteen. <laughs> wow, that it just goes to show, doesn't it? But you know, so many people have said something along those similar lines that like young photographers should not be chasing the yeah like you said the hot topic but following what interests them um because yeah I think that there's so much rejection <laughs> anyway as it is you know and if you don't love it you probably won't stick with it through all that <laughs> <laughs> absolutely and you know uh, it's great you should get a grant or uh, you should be able to finance yourself sometimes it's very difficult to sustain yourself when you're working on something and for me you know what I did was I did assignments I did assignments I got paid for it and I used that money to help in my own personal project that I wanted so there are different ways that one can work some some people work uh, for corporate events some people work for weddings uh, as a wedding photographer it doesn't matter where you work and no work is lesser uh, or demeaning it's just how you figure things out yourself you know one thing that I want to ask all of our podcast guests is what does photography ethics mean to you 
It's difficult to say one word or sentence about it, but I think photojournalism cannot sustain itself without having ethics as a backbone. And I call it a backbone because you cannot create things which are not real. You cannot uh, distort facts. You cannot stage scenes. You cannot do that. Then, then it's not what you are meant to be. I think ethics uh, has been very important to me from the very beginning. And, uh, you know, I have uh, come across certain photographers who have worked unethically. I have faced some photographers and I've asked them questions as to why are you doing this? Uh, it was not my business to do it, but I thought it is important because for our industry, you know, because if somebody does wrong, then our whole industry gets the bad name. And if somebody is working unethically or using unethical means, and uh, if this is affecting people, then it's not good for any of us to be working in the field because people will lose trust in journalists or whatever, you know, in us. So when you go to them, uh, they said, okay, we have been cheated earlier and we don't want to work with you. And this has happened to me, trust me, it has happened to me. So uh, I think it's very important for the entire industry to be transparent and work with honesty. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Photoethics Podcast. The aim of this podcast is to share new insights about photography ethics with others. So if you heard something you liked, please share this podcast with someone who would appreciate it. The links to all things mentioned in this episode number eight are available in the show notes at www.photoethics.org. Join me next week when we hear from Justin Carey on solitude and collaboration. If you're enjoying this podcast, why don't you check out our online courses? We've developed a series of three online courses designed specifically for photojournalists and documentary photographers. We discuss questions like, how do we achieve accuracy in our photographs? What's the relationship between power and consent? And when, if ever, should we intervene? These online courses come with perks, like access to an online community group for discussion, and Q&A opportunities with me, the course leader. Enroll today at www.photoethics.thinkific.com or go to www.photoethics.org and click online courses.